Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Bob Henley has written an article for Insider NJ about a part of our area's history that will probably come as a surprise to most of us because we were taught in school that there were slave states and free states and slavery was solely a Southern moral defect. But as it turns out, many Northern states, most notably New Jersey, were also enthusiastic boosters of slavery, although much of that history has been largely erased. The article, 30 Days That Woke America, Can New Jersey Finally Own Its Own Slavery History, brings Bob Henley back to our show. Bob, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for having me, Leonard. You write that your personal path to enlightenment in this regard started while you were helping your daughter at her stand at the Mendham Farmer's Market in the summer of 2014. Why there? Well, it was a confluence of happy circumstance. So uh, generally being um, a kind of loud and demonstrative person, uh, my daughter, who does love my mail, this was, had instructed me to really not interact and just do the manual labor. It's a, it's a good mission for me. So I was filling the uh, kale bags, um, and then I looked up, and this place where they had, this one year had held the farmer's market was something known as the Pitney Mansion. And it was something the town had bought, and it was unusual in that it was one of the few uh, farmsteads, I guess, in, in New Jersey that had actually been in continuous ownership since before the American Revolution. And the Pitney family had been the proud owners of it up until uh, a few years back when the township bought it. And so it was in this period of time of um, kind of... Um, the township was deciding what to do with it, so the farmer's market was there. And that's when I spied this very politically incorrect black lawn jockey on the front of the lawn of the manse. And I was thinking to myself in my quiet meditation, um, hmm, I wonder if slaves worked this land. And so that started a magical mystery tour through documents. And I thought to myself, surely the township of Mendham, such an upstanding Morris County Republican uh, uh, community would have researched this property. So I went and looked at the, uh, all the documents and the uh, due diligence done by the municipality. Indeed, they did pay an archaeologist to go and uh, churn up all the written known things about this wonderful investment in our community's future. And it was bereft of any reference to slavery. That's when the fun began. And it led you to look into the general history of slavery uh, in in the West. You point out that much of the wealth and privilege that defines our current society can be traced back to slavery and even extends back to 1452 when Pope Nicholas V promulgated the doctrine of Christian discovery. What did that involve? What did that entail? Well, this, well, this was something where you had the Catholic Church trying to bring order to the situation where you had monarchs throughout Europe competing to grab parts of the new world, parts of Africa, places that they were discovering. So to bring order to the uh, circumstance, they told all the monarchs that they could indeed go about and kind of get a franchise by laying claim to all of the heathens and all of the natural resources and wealth, all of the people of color from various religions, not Catholic, um, could be claimed 
as wealth, as objects. And hence, uh, the only thing you had to do is make sure, I guess, you had a Jesuit on, on the ship and a crucifix prominently displayed and promised to convert the people who were unenlightened to the Catholic faith. And thus spread this concept of Christian, doctrine of Christian discovery. And of course, I have to tip my hat to Jokasin uh, and um, John Kane, who on this very air, I first heard this about this whole concept years ago. And so there was kind of this wonderful confluence where, hmm, I think I've heard about this. And indeed, in, in uh, New Jersey court decisions, uh, this is this is part of the, the very DNA of the United States. This concept of the doctrine of Christian discovery, this assumption that uh, that comes that predates the uh, the American Republic, is 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 part of, like I say, the very foundation of the nation. Well, actually, it predates Columbus coming to America. We're talking about 1452, so it's mostly Africa and Asia, I'd imagine. And and uh, I wonder, since it was originally a pope. Uh, uh, and Europe was Catholic at the time, but uh, did this continue into Protestant doctrine? Because uh, uh, slavery, uh, at least in the, uh, the place that became the United States, was uh, largely the province of, of Protestant nations. Well, what is curious about this is that it, if you look at the way that New Jersey was uh, settled in terms of the political economy, uh, the, Originally uh, the by the Netherlands, Netherlands. right, right. But even and when you get to the period of time where you have uh, the English running things, they actually would give you additional land if you could prove that you had uh, slaves to work the land. And indeed, another part of this that's lost is the heavy number of indentured uh, white people that were part of this. So. The entire uh, enterprise was was rooted deeply in indentured um, uh, servitude and in slavery. In the case of what, looking through the prism of Pitney, and I think that's what's so important, is you really can only get a grasp on the authentic aspects of history when you apply it to a specific place. And so by looking at this um, Morris County uh, plantation, if you will, which at one time it had been several hundred acres, by looking at what was left out of the story, it actually told you what was really the, the driving narrative. And so in the case of Pitney Farm, the, the, the white folks that had lived there, that had gone through all these various uh, iterations, uh, had risen to uh, at one point they had somebody that was on the Supreme Court. Uh, you had uh, Revolutionary War captains. All of that was captured, but what was hidden was this aspect of slavery. And that is something, that denial uh, about this history is the ongoing way that we carry forward history. Mm -hmm. Because if you deprive people of an understanding of the broad depth of the nature of the institution, then they really can't redeem their future. And so in the case of the farm, what I found out was that there had been this unusual uh, case in the 1760s, I believe, of, as referred to in the legal documents, I found this in the Rutgers Law Library, a writ of habeas corpus executed on behalf of um, an African, they referred to it as a Negro boy, that's the, uh, the jargon of the time, um, who had been illegally sold into slavery because his, uh, his mother, uh, who was a slave, had been freed at the time of the death of her, of, uh, of her owner. 
And so this 12 or 13 uh, year old African American uh, named James, I believe, um, was uh, the the uh, descendants of this farmer in Huntington County um, uh, unscrupulously sold this young man who should have been free, this teenager, and. This was something where the state of New Jersey actually uh, decided it was the attorney general um, who at the time had decided to make this case. And so that's when I began to realize that even back then, there was a real divide where in New Jersey there were people of conscience, many of them Quakers, but many of them just uh, more along the lines of the abolitionists that we know from, from New England, like the Adams branch of the American founding father family, um, who were fighting – uh, against slavery as right before the American Revolution and through the American Revolution. So there was actually this heated debate that ran right through Lawrence County related to the fact that there were people who believed that if the United States came into being w- while carrying this original sin without expiation to slavery, it would condemn the enterprise of the United States to never live up to its full potential. It was a hypocritical. So that conversation, right? It would be hypocritical, uh, as was pointed out by a preacher at the time. But you point out right. that just four years after the the case of uh, Negro James, that's what they were called, uh, he was called, uh, the New Jersey Supreme Court, in a very similar habeas corpus petition, uh, petition brought uh, this time in behalf of a, a Native American known to the court only as Rose, ruled that she should be kept in slavery. So uh, we were getting mixed messages. This is all about property rights rather than well, about I, people. I, I, right. And in the case of Rose, in the language of the court, it, um, what they say is it has always been that these people were, were slaves. Uh, in essence, it's like trying to litigate, you know, where is the sky? I mean, so mm. it's this, this fundamental acceptance of um, – and it's it's a transference in some ways of white skin privilege, uh, and baking it into the law. And the things that I found out, the brutality of of the enforcement of the slave code in New Jersey was much, as as scholars. And again, you build on the work of others. Uh, Professor James Gatano uh, from um, Arkansas. This is a a, a fellow uh, quite a, a brilliant scholar who came up in New Jersey. Uh, but then went to Arkansas and has been doing this this work, digging up these primary primary documents. And you know, when you're going through grade school in New Jersey and high school, you learn that at the time of the end of the Civil War, there were you know, believe it or not, can you imagine there was 18 or some handful of slaves? Well, Professor Gatano suggests, through really uh, solid research, that as many as 400 slaves were. And didn't New Jersey? Didn't New Jersey maintain slavery even longer than its neighbor to the south, Maryland, which had been a, a slave well, state? Well, here's what here's what happened. So, the New Jersey, uh, the politics of New Jersey was very much uh, anti-abolition, um, and this is something um, where there was support for abolition was in the South, which is kind of counterintuitive because the Mason-Dixon line actually extends through. The bottom third or bottom fifth of New Jersey, but but the, the Quakers of, were there. Uh, but the Quakers were there in the South. The Quakers had had a lot of clout. So where slavery really had traction was in the northern part of the state, in places like Bergen County, 
and Perth Amboy and places like that where they were very reliant on slaves to make the economy work. And first, the largest amount of slaves was in Burlington County by um, uh, Governor Morris, who uh, actually had a huge uh, iron mill operation. And so all of this is largely written out of um, New Jersey's history. And so New Jersey likes to fashion itself as a, a, a state that supported the Underground Railroad. And, hey, why, we have way stations here for the Underground Railroad. Well, P.S., there's way stations there because they had to keep moving because <laughs> they weren't to the promised land if they turned up in New Jersey. Well, what about New York and Pennsylvania, the New Jersey's neighbors? Was uh, sl did slavery last as long there as well? well or is New Jersey a special is, case? New Jersey is, as uh, the late professor uh, Clement Price, uh, I missed dearly. I so wish he was around for this current national global awakening. But New Jersey really was the most enthusiastic of the northern states. It waited actually until after Lincoln's assassination and the end of the Civil War to uh, ratify the 13th Amendment, like in January of 1866. So technically, Juneteenth that happened when uh, General Granger broke the news in Texas about the emancipation, uh, New Jersey was still hanging on to this vestige. And it's also important to note, I mean, the cynicism that was involved here, because really when you look at the history of New Jersey, if they don't like people of color, you know what they hate more than that, than people of color, Leonard? Poor people. Uh, and so the way and, that they structured, uh, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, and the two are interrelated in the story that you're telling. Right, right, exactly. So imagine, so this is why, I, you know, the cynicism about New Jersey, it's, it's right for it. It does run deep. 1804, they have something called the Gradual Abolition Act. Sounds like neoliberal, doesn't it? Like, we're going to do it, but gradually. And so with this little piece, uh, and it's, uh, again, I owe much to David Mitros, who was this uh, – uh, he was an archivist for the Morris County Library. And um, he had this insight, I guess, in the 1990s that Morris County had all of this uh, research that was in the form of – potential research in the form of last will and testament from the colonial era. And somehow or other, and sometimes, you know, geniuses like this, it's also what they can do, but then they figure out how to get it done. I guess he had the county of Morris County, fairly conservative, support him to meticulously copy down the status of all of the slaves during this period of time. So if you're listening and you're in Morris County or you have anyone that, you know, is interested in this, you can go to the Morris County Library and see what side of history your ancestors are on. Um, and so, but this 1804 Abolition Act, Gradual Abolition Act, what it did, it said that um, children who were born during this period of time after the whistle blew in 1804 would still be slaves up until 21. Can't get too radical now. Mm. And then it also had a provision that if um, you had the option to declare that the African-American or African children that were in your custody – you could have them declared paupers, and then the county would give you a $3 subsidy so you could just take care of them and help the county maintain them in general welfare. This went on to the point that until 1811, uh, it was such a large um, item, expense item, that they had to stop it. Uh, another great thing was that the signature itself 
after the American Revolution, operated a slave market to sell the loyalist slaves mm. so that the state treasury itself specifically benefited from the institution of slavery, which, of course, made it hard to say that they should stop it. My guest on Leonard Lopate at Large today, uh, by the way, we're on BAI 99.5 FM in New York, is Bob Henley, and we're talking about uh, slavery in the North, most notably in New Jersey, but uh, it does apply to the whole country. And one of the things that I learned that I had not learned in school is that in 1823, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in a case called Johnson versus McIntosh that uh, the the doctrine of Christian discovery um, that had been granted to European sovereigns had been transferred to the United States. So. <laughs> so the U.S. Supreme Court, in effect, said it's okay to own slaves wherever you are in the United States. Well, in essence, what it did is it internalized the the power structure and the market economy directly from uh, what had been the existing circumstance in Europe. And one of the things about this is that it, it has this effect, and it's still something that shows up. This doctrine of Christian discovery is still kicking around. I mean, this is something that really uh, is at the root of so much of the current circumstance of Native American people, as John Cain or Jefferson, those sorts will tell you. Well, Native American people were affected by this as well. We think of slavery very much in terms of African Americans, but uh, Native Americans were also enslaved, and that's all part of the story that you're telling here. Right, right. And I think this is also the part that gets us into that, that uncomfortable space regarding Columbus, right? And mm. so in this rediscovery of looking at, um, you know, and, and what happens is occasionally we had this case recently where um, students at Georgetown uh, did some scholarship and looked at the role of slavery and the role of the Jesuits selling off slaves to keep the institution going and then developed a, a, a form of a symbolic reparations. I mean, the scale of all this, and I think this is what brings us to this current historical moment, is the confluence of uh, the, the political economy behind COVID. Now that we understand that African Americans are bearing the, the heaviest burden with this uh, virulent disease, and that such a huge percentage of the folks that are doing the essential work uh, where working from home is not an option are also people of color. It brings together in, in a convergence that is, is, that is, is tragic, but if we fully internalize it, can be the basis for a total transformation of the direction of our country. So you're seeing a direct link from what happened before the Civil War to the current situation? Where, for example, I, I communities that, of color are over-policed? Go ahead. It's a through line, right? And if you look at the scholarship and the abandonment, the work that uh, Michelle Alexander has done with the new Jim Crow, if you if you go and, like, uh, just keep a focus, and let's keep the um, um, the focus on, on New Jersey and take it all the way through. And so you have a situation where uh, in New Jersey, um, you had this uh, you know, African Americans moved into uh, coming up from the South, moved into uh, urban New Jersey because that's where the work was, that's where the union jobs were. You have a situation where 
through multinational American tax policy. We actually subsidized um, the dismantling of industry while they went and uh, went around the world and exported the factories. So you had generations of people left behind in its place. What happened was there was no real comprehensive urban strategy or economic development strategy. And so you had um, uh, people who were who had moved to a place for work where the work disappeared and the state, which had been totally about supporting the amassing of capital and not about the circumstance of the people. I mean, we're living that now, right? Increasing concentration of wealth that doesn't uh, change no matter which party's in power. And so then you have what came up in uh, checking in like 19... Um, 67, look to Newark and what happened there. Of course, the dominant white narrative about what happened in Newark was that um, the people of Newark, um, African-American people, destroyed their own city and then, you know, basically burned it to the ground. That's the dominant narrative. And it is wholly politically inaccurate, historically inaccurate. What happened there, and I've done scholarship on this, uh, it was a case where the white dominant power structure led by Mayor Adonisio uh, was an ongoing criminal enterprise. Newark was the kind of city Tony Soprano would win in a card game. <laughs> and African-Americans had systematically been closed out of public contracts generation after generation. And then when the police exercised over-policed, uh, in the case of the cab driver, the city blew up because they had been under so much pressure for so long. And then the remedy was to uh, bring in the National Guard and the state police. And this is this is all documented. There's a report done by a committee governor who's put together called the Lilly Report, which was like our current commission report. And it was documented through the gathering of sworn testimony that the state police systematically went around with the help of the National Guard and destroyed black businesses that had written Soul Brother on the storefront windows. One after another. 26 people died. There were all kinds of in-the-field executions, and nobody wants to talk about it. Well, going back to the uh, the original source of your interest, the Pitney family, uh, you learned that a number of them had been prominent throughout our history. Even though they were slavers, one fought alongside George Washington in the Battle of Long Island in 1776. Another served two terms in Congress and was nominated by President Taft to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. So it didn't matter that you were engaged in slavery in a northern state. Well, it certainly didn't uh, hold you back. And, and that's part of the importance of uh, burying the history, right? So you get the use of the humanity and ditch the reputation. I mean, that's what we've been doing, right? Reinventing ourselves. And if you look back at what's happened here, one of the great disappointments about that particular case in Mendham was that um, I had uh, written a lot about it, and it was my hope, because there were a number of outbuildings there, that by writing about it, you know, I'm still at 64, so naive, but uh, that somehow if we just kept finding things out about how important this was with history, we could get the, the place safe. But ultimately what happened was the town neglected the historic site they purchased, and it burned down mysteriously with an arson fire. And then the township did what New Jersey townships always do. Uh, well, there may be some exceptions, but too often. They sold it off and subdivided it and kept a little mm -hmm. piece for park. And so that piece of history is lost. And that's what we've done time and time again. 
where when there's something that's an uncomfortable reminder about the, the terrorism that was white supremacy, it just mysteriously disappears. It's like the way the only thing we leave around as Native American is the tribe name for the cul-de-sac. Before the Civil War, were slaves in New Jersey subject to a separate set of laws and courts similar to the ones in the South with no access to trial by jury? So blacks and American Indians accused of crimes uh, in colonial New Jersey had little hope of receiving justice. And, and when a, a slave received a death sentence, you point out, the slave owner received monetary compensation from the state. That's right, because again, our first and most important thing is aiding the amassing of capital. Get the theme here, Leonard? It's a mm. constant theme. And the same thing happened as a great anecdote um, where in New York State in this, in this period of time, uh, they had a prominent um, uh, cotton trader come to town. And his um, African-American uh, male servant, valet decided this was an opportunity to uh, liberate himself, and so the the, the gentle folks of the uh, around the uh, cotton market and exchange were just so embarrassed that he should pick this state. They took up a collection to compensate him. I, after reading your article, I'll never be able to think of the town of Perth Amboy in the same way. <laughs> <laughs> well. And that the aspect of uh, one of the things that happened was off of in the round in the early 18th century, there was a, a, a kind of it, was, it didn't amount to much, but there was a slave rebellion in New York City. There was such concern that that would happen in in New Jersey that there actually um, slaves were burned at the stake in hmm. Bergen County. And, and if so, there were slave revolts, know, were, were there slave revolts? Well, there was, I mean, there was, it's hard again, because the stuff is written, who gets to write this history, but the people that were driving the system, mm -hmm. but there was concern over it. And so all it took was concern. Uh, I mean, even to the point, one of the things that um, the, the British during the American Revolution were much quicker to uh, suggest the idea of trading a manumission uh, for service in, in, the, in the British military. And that was something that, I mean, there was some, uh, I've been able to identify some spot cases where that happened in um, on the American side. But this this question of, the unresolved question of, of race, we just keep carrying it forward. I mean, it's even, um, and look at the, the example, for instance, going back to the abandonment of Reconstruction. If you go back to the South, how quickly... Um, the the U.S. the Union forces kind of left the South to its own devices. I mean, even something as you think FDR, we always assume FDR to have been this 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 great divisionary who lifted up the country out of the depression um, and stood up against capital interests. But in order to get through many of the most important labor reforms that we uh, come to rely on, whether it be the eight-hour day overtime. All of that was uh, that labor changing the law, those reforms that have just transformed the lives of factory workers. Explicitly, uh, domestic and agriculture workers were written out of all those mm. reforms to buy Southern votes. And no, although, so, like I'm yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go finish. Sorry, I'm listening to you. No, well, no, no, so that is. No, so that go. is. <laughs> <laughs> no, after you, Gaspar. Guess on. Okay. No, so Although, I'm saying that this, yeah. 
Although New Jersey fought on the side of the Union in the Civil War, haven't historians claimed that the state was the most enthusiastic northern state when it came to holding on to slavery after uh, all the other northern states had, end, had ended? Just before the end of the Civil War, New Jersey even voted down the 13th Amendment that would abolish slavery and only voted to ratify it in 1866 after the end of the Civil War and after Lincoln was assassinated. Well, they wanted to make sure they knew which way it was going to go. Uh, <laughs> but this this concept of uh, New Jersey and how it positioned itself, it, it was also uh, its governor at the time was also trying to, at the last gasp before the war broke out, was trying to negotiate something. I mean, New Jersey, by its um, by geographic location, finds itself you know, in this in this spot between these two very dynamic commercial capitals. I mean, uh, lest we dump too much on New Jersey, we do know, and I'm, I think I've heard it on your program, that the New York City mayor at the time, that there was support for New York City to secede and yes. join the Confederacy because the city itself was so reliant mm -hmm. on the Southern economy. Yes. In fact, uh, yeah, I think Wall Street was linked to the sale of cotton in some ways. Um, we Bye. have to take a little break. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM. Before we get back to our discussion uh, with Bob Henley, I'd like to take a few minutes to talk to you about something quite important. Like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been hit quite hard by the pandemic, and many of our longtime supporters have been forced economically to pull their support for the station, which is why we are asking anyone who's able to at this time, uh, this time of crisis, to please step up and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio and Leonard Lopate at Large on the air and, and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And the way to do that is by calling, we hope you'll do it right now, 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. Or by going to our website, give to wbai.org. That's give and then the number two, wbai.org. And one particularly helpful way to show your support without having to shell out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. Uh, there are listeners who contribute $10 or more each month. It could be 10, 15, 20, whatever you're comfortable with to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. And anyone who signs up right now to become a BAI buddy will be invited to join me and nine other listeners for one of two teleconferences that we're calling My Dinner with Leonard. So we're already, we've already filled up one and we're in the process of filling up another and we will give people who, uh, who join and uh, want to be part of this whole thing a choice of which one to participate in. And you'll be able to ask me or any of your fellow listeners anything that you'd like. It's a great way to support the station during this difficult time. Both uh, events are already close to full, so it's important to make that call right now, 516-620-3602, 
or by going to our website, give to WBAI.org. And um, Bob Henley, you've uh, had a long career in public radio, so you know how important independent media uh, are at a time like this. Um, uh, are you surprised by how difficult it's been recently, not just for WBAI, but for, for public radio stations all across the country? Well, I can tell you is that what's happened is I think all these institutions and media more broadly has been hit by the demand to provide news and information on an unprecedented uh, during an unprecedented period of time, and where you have you know multiple storylines working that in of themselves would be unusual circumstances. You combine it all together, and mm. it's it's nothing short of dramatic, and so. What's happened is that um, it is, I think, we know that, I guess, in the last 15 years, according to Pew, we've lost around 50% of the reporters in the country. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we know that local newspapers um, are just disappearing. And so what's left is a hodgepodge of uh, local websites and then this larger corporate news monolith which is based on aggregation, which, which rarely has boots on the ground uh, that's out doing reporting. And so as a consequence, and this really does have uh, both, uh, whether it be environmental or public health, you, you don't have any situ situational awareness as a culture about what's going on. And so, for instance, um, as a labor reporter for the chief leader covering the, um, the tragedy that's going on in America's meatpacking plant, if it wasn't for the weekly papers that are left in in the Dakotas, in Iowa, we'd have no idea about the way that President Trump, working with corporations, is putting the public health and the lives of these union workers at risk. And and many newspapers have cut back on their community reporting because uh, pretty much all the newspapers right now, as you said, have done staff cutbacks. Uh, WBAI is. Uh, is perhaps an anomaly in this area. We uh, focus on community issues. So um, we're filling some kind of a gap here. Um, I hope our, our audience will come through and help us continue to fill that gap. The number 516-620-3602 or, or the website is give to wbaiorg And please, uh, when you do that, say that you're doing it in the name of Leonard Lope at large. Uh, Bob, um, how bad has it been for somebody like you who really wants to to talk about the, the the local issues as they affect the larger issues? Well, I mean, as you know, I mean, we don't go into too many gory details, but the, when you're dealing with institutions that are uh, increasingly beholden to corporate interests, it means the the aperture that you can get um, uh, shrinks, and so. With a, a BAI becomes, or whether I'm on the air with Ian Masters, KPFK, or on with Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman, these are just these precious oases in, um, you know, in our circumstance. And I want to say something in a positive note, which is that if you look at, uh, if you doubt whether or not BAI has made a difference, right, um, and just think about the national global conversation that we're happening today. Understand that you heard this conversation 40 years ago, all right? And so your investment in this station now isn't taking us even further than we are now 
because we're here only because BI was there. Where do you think these young people got these ideas? You don't think they were taught in school, do you? <laughs> it's true. Well, we were considered rather radical for talking about some of the things that have now become kind of mainstream, or at least liberal exactly. mainstream. Well, if you look at Eric Adams, I was here in nineteen. I was here in seventy-seven, and uh, there were, you know, there were a lot of people who were concerned about the kinds of of guests that we were putting on our shows. You know, Abby Hoffman was a regular on my show, for example. <laughs> exactly. So this I thought it was funny. Right. Well, this has been the laboratory for what's next, and so uh, particularly for folks who, who might be retired who are in a position, have some kind of circumstance where they're not, it's not like they're doing great, but they have a little bit of extra. Think of it as a scholarship. And because the other thing about uh, BAI was it was a place where I was the uh, oldest of six in a single parent household, went to a state school, uh, really learned about radio production because BAI was a free university, right? And so it's so essential now that we that we provide that we have places where young people don't have to get into a tremendous amount of debt in order to understand how to use the tools that are about transformation which is what mass media is bob i want to get back to our conversation about things that are happening but a uh, reminder the the number to call is 516-620-3602 or you can go to our website, give2wbai.org. And whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you step up right now to show your support so we can continue to bring you these long-form interviews on topics that we hope will be of interest to you. And, and I want to give a special thank you to all of the wonderful listeners who have contributed already during this drive. Listeners like Rosamund Barber in Manhattan's Upper East Side. Thank you so much, Rosamund. And like Rosamund, Please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And thanks to you all. And uh, let's, we're back now with Bob Henley. Uh, he has written a lot of uh, articles recently. We've been talking about um, the, the one he wrote about New Jersey's history with slavery. And I don't know if there's anything more you want to say about it, but do you want to talk about some of the other things that you've written about recently? The Maurice sure. Gordon case, the activities of the Boogaloo right-wing group, and, and the ways that COVID-19 is affecting civil servants? Yeah, I mean, again, it's all kind of connected. Uh, we have been at Insider NJ, uh, which is where I do my uh, New Jersey work. We've been following the case of Maurice Gordon, uh, who was a 28-year-old uh, unarmed uh, black man, uh, had been in the United States a few years, was born in Jamaica, uh, was a student up at Dutchess Community College, was uh, coming down uh, from Poughkeepsie, was on the Garden State Parkway on May 23rd. Um, had several interactions with local police, New Jersey State Police, uh, had been pulled over speeding twice. Um, and then in the last time he was um, uh, pulled over, um, sat basically in the back of the uh, squad car for some 20 minutes of that incident while they waited for a tow truck. But through circumstances that are still rather murky, ended up being shot six times uh, and handcuffed and died mm. on the side of the New Jersey Garden State Parkway. So uh, died for speeding. 
Well, it, it turns out that the, and it depends on you know how you read. Um, a key document was leaked to the Daily News uh, prior to its public release related to the shooting, which purported to uh, re- uh, that laid out a scenario that the uh, that the state is favoring, which is that he attempted to get into the state trooper's uh, car and that you know there was a struggle for his gun. Um, the problem with the the dash cam video is it's kind of inconclusive uh, as to what was going on. And, of course, um, the uh, the troopers on the Garden State Parkway and Turnpike, just strangely enough, were the last troop not to get body cameras. Now, people who have been following this for a while will find it passing strange that all the other troopers in New Jersey had body cams, but the troopers on the Turnpike and Garden State Parkway did not. Now, why this would be passing strange is that this was the very place, uh, these highways, that was the subject of a major federal consent decree after the tragedy when two white state troopers shot up a a van with three African-American young men in it. Miraculously, nobody died. But what happened was uh, the state had to admit that it had a pattern and practice of racial profiling on these highways. And so there was a long, drawn-out federal consent decree they sat before the judge and we're going to reform ourselves and they had coffee you know card tables outside black churches to recruit people they did that dance and then 2009 the judge looks at it and says okay you're all better new jersey's fixed the state police and then here we are in 2020 <laughs> and they don't have body cameras hmm Another article you wrote about was the municipal labor committees wanting Mayor de Blasio to plug New York City's $8 billion budget hole by offering early retirement incentives while borrowing to cover lost revenue and COVID-19 related expenses. Can can you elaborate on that? Well, what's that all about? This is... This is is multidimensional train wreck here. So, um, on the national scene, we have uh, uh, Moscow Mitch the Turtle not uh, coming forward with McConnell's not coming forward with the aid required to backstop municipal and state and county budgets across the country. They're in free fall because of the shutdown and because of the Trump depression. That well, actually, he wants, to, he wants to deny it mostly to blue states because they're the ones well, who have the greatest expenses. Right. Right, and it also wants to fit in there some kind of thing where corporations can be held harmless if you know the workforce their workforce gets COVID because the company doesn't take proper precautions. Yeah, there's all with these guys. There's always again our theme, like earlier, is the amassing of capital is our national imperative, and so. Um, so, so the mayor said uh, last month, he warned that he'd have to turn to layoffs unless Congress provided stimulus aid to states and localities that have been hard hit by the pandemic. Bob, are you there? Did we lose Bob Henley at this mo- important moment? Well, Bob? I'm, here, I'm back. I'm oh, good. Hello. Did you hear yes. what I just said? Uh, I did. You mentioned that the mayor had uh, mentioned that he might have to resort to layoffs. Yeah. And of course, the the reality here is that New York City has around 330,000 employees. 
The workforce has expanded greatly under uh, Mayor de Blasio. There's roughly about 15,000 provisionals. Those are individuals who don't have a civil service title. They would be the first to go in a layoff scenario, depending on their agency. Um, what, is there, what folks are trying to do, the unions and uh, the competent legislators, are trying to be proactive and fashion some form of early retirement package which can help folks who are, you know, north of 55 uh, to consider retiring. And so what this does is it preserves the workforce uh, because under the law without such a provision for uh, early retirement, you do what's referred to as um, last in, first out. So if you're a young person starting your career in the civil service and there's no thoughtful uh, management of this, this retirement, situation, they'll just lay you off depending on where they need to get to. And so what this does do is it means the young people you just trained up on the job, you lose. And so already in civil service around the country, we've had a crisis in terms of succession where there aren't sufficient young people, particularly in IT, to step in to run these systems that even now in the pandemic are more essential than ever. So that's something that is behind the scenes happening. And then also in Albany, but, but wait, but wait, I, I, I'm, I'm wondering whether that is still isn't better than firing somebody uh, who is making a reasonable salary uh, and saying that he had engaged in inappropriate behavior, even though you have no uh, really any proof of that uh, as a way of saving money. Is that a better is, is that a better approach? I'm not getting personal here, but. I know. But I mean, the, the truth is that um, we're in a situation right now where it's both a long term structural budget problem and a real cash crunch because this the federal government put off its tax collection deadline to July 15th. And so you had states and jurisdictions follow suit. So uh, you have a, a cash crunch problem. Now, the governor, Governor Cuomo, got a little bit of buy time here. Because he didn't, uh, what he did is he suspended raises that were uh, supposed to schedule to go through, they were contractually agreed to, and has a hiring freeze. Uh, New York City is still kind of confused. Its response, if you think the pandemic response has been messy, the fiscal thing so far is just really a need of leadership. I mean, Corey Johnson is stepping into the void. I mean, there is some leadership in the council. But as far as the mayor, it's really not clear. It's like they really have all their eggs in the Mitch McConnell turtle basket. And I think that could be a mistake. You also wrote about the activities of the Boogaloo right wing group. Uh, the president uh, doesn't mention them. He uh, he seems to think all the problems are the result of uh, activities by Antifa, uh, which means right. anti-fascist. Right. <laughs> um, well, um, maybe he feels personally uh, insulted there, but uh, what what have the Boogaloo's been doing? Weren't they at uh, the uh, uh, the Tulsa event? Well, um, I can't speak to that because I didn't do any uh, wearing Hawaiian shirt. Are they the ones who wear the Hawaiian shirts? Yeah, they are. Yes. Yeah. You know, then they were reported to be there. Right. And so one of the things about this, though, that is really of concern, it has been underreported, is that. Um, around the time of, I want to say, the Friday after um, uh, George Floyd was killed by police in Minneapolis, things in Oakland, California got 
uh, pretty intense in terms of social unrest. In the midst of that, um, a uniformed African-American Department of Homeland Security Protective Service Officer, Patrick Underwood, was shot multiple times while he was on duty protecting the Ron Dellums courthouse. And um, this was seized on by the law and order folks as evidence that this is anarchy and this is the left gone run amok. And it turns out that it was an active duty staff sergeant who dabbled in this boogaloo stuff uh, who was arrested. And he was actually in custody because just a few days earlier, he had killed a, a deputy sheriff. And there was a whole cult thing around this where um, as an active duty member of the military, he was able to actually come up with um, improvised explosive devices, which he used in the first instance with the deputy sheriff. And this is really underreported. Um, this increasing rise of the militant right that's armed. And we see it, and it's and when it is referred to, uh, it's kind of done in a, a mocking way. And we saw that when President Trump told his armchair soldiers to liberate Michigan, right? So what you see is the militia manifest itself in front of the Mich Michigan State Capitol or intimidating people by being actually inside the Capitol with their automatic weapons. And so, uh, but this aspect of it where they, are, the whole idea is to use the social moment as a way to further divide the country and to precipitate um, a race-based race civil war. Isn't that nice? Now, we have just a couple of minutes left, and I wanted to give you the opportunity to add anything you wanted before I say goodbye. I uh, know that I'm just at Stuck Nation, uh, and that's my Twitter handle, and then also... I well, how, how do you spell that so people... Well, how do you spell that so people can find you? Stuck Nation, S-T-U-C-K. Stuck Nation. Nation, exactly right. And you know how to spell history correctly? You tweets history? You know that story? And then, yeah, and then also I'm at... At Chief Leader, um, and I'm also, uh, you can direct message me, I'm always interested in stories about um, misguided managers and institutions that aren't doing the right by the public and, and, and unions that are having difficulties, um, or individual stories of people making a difference. We do it all. Now, have you had any feedback to your your uh, your article on the uh, the history of race, of slavery in, in New Jersey? Because it goes against uh, what I'm well, sure so I, many people want to believe. Right. I mean, I guess uh, it is uh, the people that are had open minds uh, have kind of uh, 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 been attracted to it. Uh, my ultimate hope, though, is that can be the beginning of a conversation for New Jersey to require a thorough um, a course actually in in our schools. And that would require students to go out and investigate the actual history of where they are in terms of slavery so that we can reanimate this history so that we can own it. Bob Henley is a regular on our show. It's always a pleasure to have you, Bob, and we'll see you next month or maybe sooner. All right. Thanks, Leonard. Take care. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Uh, if you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter. 
And before I sign off today, I'd like to take one last moment to ask for your support for this station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all of the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this whole thing alive. Please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with. And as I mentioned, and if you become, if you've already been a member and your membership has has lapsed and you haven't received a notice, well. Here's a notice. Please renew your membership. And as I mentioned earlier, if you become a BAI buddy right now by making a monthly contribution of $10 or more in the name of this show, you can join me for one of two special teleconference events we're calling My Dinner with Leonard. Right now, we already have uh, a fair number of people who have, have joined in on that. We have a few more openings. Uh, if you uh, time is running out, but probably uh, not be able to m- even announce this uh, much more. So please go to our website, give to wbai.org. That's give and then the number to wbai.org or call 516-620-3602 to show your support to this unique in-depth content that we bring you on this show. And be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. Uh, again, uh, the uh, the my dinner with uh, with Leonard uh, will involve you and uh, a number of other listeners, and we can have a, a wide ranging conversation. Uh, we're going to have two of them, so you'll be able to pick what date is best for you. Uh, I hope that uh, you'll join us for that. But even if you don't. Please show your support for the station. Again, the number 516-620-3602 or go to our website, give to WBAI.org and be sure to make that contribution the name of Leonard Lopate at large. Um, for all From all of us here at the station, thank all of you uh, who have helped keep this show and, and the, the, the programming on WBAI coming to you into the foreseeable future. We are off tomorrow, but we hope you'll join us on Thursday when I'll be speaking to Paris DDO University professor and research researcher Francois Venucci about his article that he wrote for the conversation entitled Einstein's Two Mistakes. We'll see you then.